Marvelites. You are listening to Marvel's pull list for new Marvel comics on sale April 14th, 2021. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Yeah, Tuck, 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 Tucker. How you doing? I'm doing okay. You know, it's interesting now because I'm recording in the morning, you're recording in the afternoon. I'm bringing my tranquil post-meditation on the beach yoga flexibility. You're, you know, you're bringing your afternoon, getting after it. That's definitely real. If you ever do meditation, I want someone <laughs> to videotape it because just like, like I just want to see you vibrate until uh, of like nervous, upset. You're tapping into something I don't even think you realize. Like I feel like a cellular inability to relax. Yeah, <laughs> I'm familiar with that, and I, we've known each other yeah. not long enough where I can tell that yeah. very easily. But dear listeners, yeah. we hope you relax as we tell you about all the new comics on sale this week. We're going to give you our favorites, our personal picks for this week, as well as run down some great other books that are out this week. We're going to give them Pulling an Oyster from a Shell Awards. Oh, that's nice. Yes. We're going to give out our Pulling an Oyster from a Shell Awards, and then we're going to get into our interview. And our interview this week is Mr. Declan Shalvey, writer-artist extraordinaire, and he chose an awesome, really cool off-the-beaten-path book called Deadline, which uh, is going to be really fun. I hope everybody reads that in preparation. We'll get into that a little bit later. All right, Tucker, let's go right into things with our first pick of the week. And it is Spider-Man, Spider's Shadow number one, one of my probably most anticipated comics of the year. It is written by Chip Zdarsky, has art by Pasquale Ferry, colors by Matt Hollingsworth and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. Holy moly, this book is, it's tremendous. It's exactly what I wanted out of it. So the idea here is we have what if stories. What if stories really sort of have a hinge point? What if X, Y, Z? So what if... Captain America woke up in, you know, the 1990s. What if Captain America was never frozen? What if Thanos wasn't beaten by, you know, Adam Warlock? Like any number of things. And then sort of you go from there. It has a hinge point, And the idea is that a what if tells you, what if that happened? Here's the rest of the story. And some of my favorite comics of all time. I'm a huge proponent of those stories. And so what those always have been are, basically one-off tales. You tell them in a single issue, but the idea now, and this is the first in what we're hopefully going to get as a series of books, is, all right, you have this what-if story, there's a hinge point, and also, what if we gave them a full limited series to tell this story, to really let it breathe, and we have amazing creators like Chip and Pasquale on this one, and so the idea here is really, what if Spider-Man bonded with the symbiote costume? What if he didn't reject it? What if he didn't take it off with the Fantastic Four? And what if it didn't then become, you know, symbiote with Eddie Brock and become Venom and all this other stuff? So it's really cool. And if you've been reading the symbiote Spider-Man books, you know, you have this like time period maybe in your head of when Spidey comes back from Secret Wars and he's got the, the black suit. And so you're building around that. He's in a relationship with Black Cat at that time. He's dealing with some stuff with Aunt May and Mary Jane. He's got work and life balance, all that stuff. And the really cool thing is what was going on for Peter at that time was the black suit, the symbiote, was draining his energy. It was really like making him more aggressive, making him very tired. It was really like wearing him down as it was working its way to becoming one with him. He was kind of fighting it and it was it was really wearing on him. So this story really like dives into that aspect of it and then what would drive Peter to keep the suit. And I don't want to give 
anything away because I think it really works so organically and elegantly, but it is a horror book. It is turning into very much a like scary, creepy, weird, like thriller slash horror story, especially by the end of the issue, some things go down and it's nasty and it's brutal. It's really great to have Pasquale Ferry back at Marvel. Uh, He does the whole kit and caboodle, all the art. So pencils and colors and inks. He doesn't look like anybody else. The feeling of his art is very unique to him. There's a an almost watercolor meets digital quality to his work. It's really wonderful. He has some really interesting dark lines and shadows and shading, and it's perfect for this title. And of course, if you like Chip, which we all love Chip Zdarsky and everything he writes, this is kind of a perfect comic for me. Yeah, I totally agree right there with you. My first pick this week comes in the form of Thor number 14. This is the finale of Prey, which is a story arc that's focused heavily on Donald Blake, the once Thor, now kind of evil madman. What a character, what a change, what just kind of awesome character building and uh, character arc that we've seen this character go through over the course of this run so far. And I got to say, this is also an issue that I feel like does a bunch of really interesting character work for Thor himself as well. This issue was really fascinating because he makes some almost strange decisions, but they're decisions that if you have a position of power like Thor has, you need to think five steps ahead. So we're either looking at something in this issue where Thor is growing into his role as a king. He is starting to think ahead. He is starting to make mature decisions. It's either that or he's in the middle of making a huge mistake. And only time will tell. This issue pretty much centers around a final showdown between some of the great figures of Asgard. Doctor Strange is also in there as well. That's the ghost dog. Throg is in there going up against Donald Blake, pretty much on the surface of the Bifrost. It's awesome. There is an enormous double page spread in here that is absolutely Nick Klein at his best. And hey, while I'm at it, this issue is written by Donnie Cates, art by Mr. Klein, colors by the great Matt Wilson, and letters and designs by VC's Joe Sabino. You know, I I think it's overall, to wrap up, it's a book with a ton of bombast, huge energy, huge adventure. But I think we're also seeing like a very sneaky Venom style character story at the heart of this, which is really, really, really cool to see. And I'm just a huge fan of all of it. Yeah. We're actually getting a double dose of Thor action this week in our picks because I also chose Thor and Loki Double Trouble number two and is written by Mariko Tamaki, art by Gudahiru and letters by VC Zariana Mar. I was so charmed by this issue and I have been for every single issue of the Double Trouble books. It's so good. It is Thor and Loki getting into trouble. The title gives you everything you need to know about the book, and it is wonderful. At the end of the the first issue, Thor and Loki had accidentally unleashed the sister of the Midgard serpent, and like there was just this big bit of, oh no, and then more than half the issue is them fighting the Midgard serpent. It's full of Loki being a scamp, and Thor sort of like trying to catch up and like beating his brow at him and it's funny and it's cute. There's a part where Thor tells Loki, you've got to do something to stop this serpent, charm her, do whatever you can. So Loki turns into a little snake 
and starts like going like, hey, and then like the the serpent's like, bah! and he's like running away. And when he's running away, the sound effect is snake, 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 snake. <laughs> the best thing ever. It's so good. It's so funny. If you are someone who's like just super hung up on continuity, stop. Don't worry about it. Come <laughs> in from the cold. Enjoy a great comic book. And it's a great comic book you can read with anyone. You got a kid around, they're going to love this. It's so much fun. You got someone who's like a little jaded and needs just to laugh. This is great. Thor and Loki Double Trouble. I promise you. It's so good. Yes, right there with you. I absolutely adore that series. Adore Mariko. So, so much good stuff. So much to love. Okay, that's what we have for our picks this week. Now we're diving into all the new comics headed your way to your local comic shop this week. And boy, oh boy, do we have a bunch of them. Kicking things off, we have Black Cat number five. And what was it? We're pulling... Pulling oysters from a shell. Yes. It's a song reference to a song from probably before you were born, nonetheless. (laughs) Pulling oysters from a shell. This week, that goes to this absolutely fascinating relationship that we are methodically getting to know in this series between Felicia Hardy and the Black Fox, the Black Cat's mentor. The Black Fox is just a fascinating character. It feels like almost Nick Fury and the Howling Commandos, like Sergeant Fury kind of style, old school approach. He's a 'er ne'er-do-well, of course. He's teaching Felicia Hardy's the, the ways of being an expert thief, all of these things. It is so cool. I think he's so fascinating. There's a scene at the top of this issue between the two of them. They're just sitting on a bench on Cody Island, just at the beach, and they're just having a conversation. And you just are drawn directly into that talk. As we get to know the supporting cast of Jed McKay's Black Cat, it's really exciting. It's a really, really cool thing. And hey, I'll wrap this up by saying... If you're a Jed McKay fan like Ryan and I are, there's exciting Jed McKay news either out there or about to be out there. So just uh, either your eyes will have been peeled or keep them peeled. I can't remember when we get Jed McKay news. It feels like we're always blessed with new Jed McKay news, which is great. I know, right? Speaking of Black Fox, if you have Marvel Unlimited, one of my favorite Black Fox stories from when I was a kid, which I read over and over again, was Amazing Spider-Man number 350, drawn by the amazing Eric Larson. It's a great, great issue. It's Spider-Man versus Doctor Doom and Black Fox is in there and it's a hoot. It's a really great issue. The character has been fantastic for a long time. All right, we've got Children of the Atom number two this week and my Pulling Oysters from a Shell award for it goes to Concert I Really Wish I Could Go To. It's Dazzler at Webster Hall. One, (laughs) to see Dazzler perform live would be the best. Everybody would be euphoric and dancing and it would be glorious. And also, I love Webster Hall. I want to go back to Webster Hall. I miss Webster Hall. It's a great place to see shows. But this one follows along with these new characters, these kids who, I will refrain from the spoiler, there was a big sort of thing at the end of the first issue and you're like, wait a minute, what's going on? And it really follows along with them again in this issue of like, dealing with the consequences of what we think we've learned and how that's going along. They're like interacting with the X-Men and mutants and Krakoa. There's just lots of great Krakoa-ness around all this, which I love. It's like a Krakoa adjacent story because most of it does not take place on Krakoa. And I like seeing that kind of storytelling in our universe. Yeah, totally. I'm right there with you. And now next up, we are heading over to Hell's Kitchen with Daredevil number 29. 
we're kind of following two or three storylines in, in a major way in this issue. But my pulling an oyster out of the shell of the week goes to this awesome prison yard sequence with Matt Murdock in this issue. The way it's put together, the drama that's inherent in every single one of these panels. It's raining. It's like a gang of dudes against Matt. Would you say it's raining men? <laughs> it, it absolutely is. Hallelujah. And hallelujah to that. Marco Coquetto is bringing something different to those pages. I don't say that in terms of quality because he is one of the best, period. I say that in terms of the tone he's going for in those pages. It's a little bit noir. It's a little bit more dramatic. The way that we frame up on Matt's face at times. There's these little choices that are adding to so much more than the sum of its parts. It's just glorious, old school daredevil throwdown in that way. Of course, that's not to mention everything that's going on with Elektra. That continues to be one of my favorite things happening in all of Marvel Comics. I could go on and on and on, but it's really, really great stuff. Okay. Yeah. All right, we've got a brand new Darkhawk issue this week. It's Darkhawk Heart of the Hawk number one. Shout out to listener Boomerman Guido at Old Man Guido who uh, tweeted me about this issue being like, oh, does that mean there's more Darkhawk coming? And I, you know, I had to be coy and say uh, this one, just a one shot. But to Boomer and to anybody else out there who's a Darkhawk fan, the final page of this issue does say coming later this year. Darkhawk soars again. Uh, what's cool about this, this is three stories celebrating 30 years of Darkhawk. You've got one story by the creative team of the original Darkhawk series from the 90s. You've got a story by the creative team during the like sort of cosmic side of Darkhawk in the 2000s. And you've got a creative team for a new version of Darkhawk and what's going on with the character nowadays. Something for everybody in here. And like I said, more coming later this year. Okay, next up, we are taking a trip with the Guardians of the Galaxy. This is issue number 13. In this issue, we are getting kind of classic Guardians of the Galaxy comics right here. Juan Forgary jumps on board as artist in here, and I think it's just beautiful. It's one of those issues where you feel the artist not wanting to waste any space. He goes for it. He gives you those extra details, and it really elevates the scale of this book. I think one of the things that Al has said that has become a mission statement for Guardians going forward is the Avengers are the superheroes for planet Earth, and they take care of everything that goes on planet Earth. Guardians of the Galaxy are in charge of everything in the cosmos. So if you have an issue, who do you go to? You go to the Guardians. And so that's what I mean by this being a classic Guardians superhero story. It's really big. There is so much scale to this. It is so jam-packed with stuff. The direction we end up in is so exciting. If you're looking for classic Guardians, so much heart, great characters, all of the things that you can love from a Guardians of the Galaxy book, you got to dig in. Now is the time. There is no better time than now. I think issue number 13 is a really, really great place to jump on board. Yeah. That has my favorite ending to a book this week, I think. Yeah. The best. Oh, man. So good. Uh, all right. We've got Iron Fist Heart of the Dragon number four out this week. It gets my Pulling Oysters from a Shell award for surprise moments of the week, and they all revolve around Okoye and what she's involved in and how she plays a part in an Iron Fist book. This book is Iron Fist, Heart of the Dragon, 
but it feels very much like Larry Hama was like, I'm just writing a big Marvel Universe event and Iron Fist is at the heart of it. But like, I'm going to do whatever the hell I want and I'm going to do it awesome because I'm Larry freaking Hama. Uh, This book is great. It's a bunch of cool superheroes fighting dragons and zombies and awesome martial arts and great dialogue and character bits. Next up, we have Iron Man number eight. This Iron Man series has been hugely unexpected in a bunch of different ways. It is not the Iron Man story, I think, that you would automatically assume a book with those words on the cover might end up being. One of the main reasons for that is the presence of Patsy Walker and how important Hellcat has been to this story. Like in this issue, this book might as well say Hellcat on the cover. And I really like that. I really, really enjoy what's going on here. It's a strange story. It's a little bit mystical. It is a bunch of things that you wouldn't necessarily, like I said, associate with a book called Iron Man. There's so much to love in this book for me. It is exactly the kind of unexpected, subversive kind of story that I am into. I think this one might get my picking an oyster out of its shell for, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe artist of the week. I mean, that's saying a lot, but Angel Unzueta in here, I feel like is showing off in a big way. There is some beautiful stuff happening in here. Really, really great work from Angel. So a lot to love in Iron Man. A little bit of breaking news. Our catchphrase of the week was bugging me this whole time. I'm like, there's something wrong here. And I realized it's pulling mussels from the shell, not oysters. Mussels? You know what? Here's the thing. I'd rather eat a mussel than an oyster. Okay, perfect. And you know what? In classic comic book style, that's what we've been saying all along. It's been retconned. It's always been mussels. That's right. Uh, so yeah, that Iron Man issue also has probably my favorite panel of the week. It is this wonderful shot of Frogman strapped in yes. <laughs> in the, the spaceship. And it has the dialogue, he says, I was very excited to go to outer space, but now I really don't like it at all. And his, his posture, the way yeah. his eyes are basically screaming. Uh, yeah, you my, can see his fingers clutching the chair like white knuckles. God, it is perfect. It is such a great panel. Uh, all right, let's go to a little bit of King and Black action. I know King and Black number five has already released, but we're getting some aftermath stories here this week. We've got Fantastic Four issue number 30. It sort of takes place towards the end of the battle that ends King and Black and after everything finishes. Uh, in this issue, it's one of my favorite things. It's that post-event reckoning of characters coming to grips with some big event, some revelations, some emotional beats. Dan Slott just goes full in on exploring his love for all of these characters, his deft way of telling their stories, of knowing who these characters are and what they're all about. And and it's tremendous if you are a fan of who the Fantastic Four are. I think this is a great one to just be like, yeah, this is my FF. Yeah. This next issue is King of Black Namor, number five. This immediately got my pulling muscles from the shell of the week for Haunt Your Dreams of the Week. There is some creepy underwater action happening here. It's brought to you beautifully by Benjamin Dewey. I love this art. If you're a Namor fan, uh, you're probably jumped on board like you should have because we have one of the greats writing one of the greats in here. I love seeing the kind of Atlantis entry into a big event story like this. I love seeing how a huge event story 
on the streets of somewhere like New York City impacts a place and a person like Namor, like Atlantis. It's really, really interesting. And it just provides a new opportunity to explore that world, an entirely different world where we come out and come up for air, so to speak, at the other side. It's just so masterfully done. It's one of those things that when you read that many comics, you can just see like, oh, there's someone who really knows his doing this right here. (laughs) That's the way to sum it up. Yeah. All right, let's get back into things. We've got Maestro War and PAX number four. My Pulling Muscles from a Shell award for this one goes to Best Modoc Appearance of the Week. Also the only MODOK appearance this week. We get MODOK. And not only that, he gets to say, and I will give no other context around it. MODOK says the line, we become the Avengers. Ooh. Ooh. Mm. You got to read the book to find (laughs) out how that happens. But it's got the Maestro Hulk versus the Pantheon in a knockdown drag out, like physical fight. But the emotional stakes of this issue are so high and it really pays off. It's Peter David playing with characters he knows inside out upside down and backwards and it shows it's great yeah uh next up we have non-stop spider-man number two this is the pulling muscle out of shell for just kind of craziest book of the week it truly is non-stop i love how writer joe kelly imbues that spirit into what's happening in this book because not only is it's so fast-paced not only are you kind of flying across New York City right next to Spidey in here. The art is brought to you, of course, by Chris Pachala. So how it's done, how that's executed, it's a really unique panel structure throughout. And then some of the characters that show up and present obstacles to Spidey are just wild. It's just crazy. The energy never stops. You never stop moving. And that's exactly how it should be with a book called Nonstop Spider-Man. It's just great stuff. Uh, All right, we've got Power Pack number five, finishing off this limited series, which has been tremendous. It's a lot of fun. This gets my Pulling Muscles from the Shell award for best new character of the week, a character named Wolvermeen. That's W-O-L-V-E-R-M-E-A-N. It's great. This is Ryan Q. North of Squirrel Girl fame and so much more having a blast. This book is so great. It's so fun. It's Power Pack trying to get their powers back from the wizard. And it's just tremendous. Wolverine is involved in this. Wolverine is involved in this. And it has a great line of dialogue, which I really appreciate, where they're talking about sort of orchestrating a fight. And Alex Power, the older of the the kids, says, he leaps back as my punch lands. It's amazing. And I'll say this, I think I just both simultaneously understood and also became a fan of professional wrestling. (laughs) He gets it. Wrestling is the best. Awesome. Uh, Okay, quickly jumping over to the world of Star Wars. Next up with Star Wars Bounty Hunters number 11. We are heading quickly to the War of the Bounty Hunters. So that is my picking a muscle out of a shell of the week. It is how excited I am now as this issue kind of acts as a little mini prelude to the War of the Bounty Hunters. It's going to be a really, really cool crossover event in Star Wars comics that I am super, super pumped about. Heck yeah. All right. Last new issue this week is Wolverine number 11. This is a big vampire party issue. There's lots of great blood sucky bits throughout this. It gets my Pulling Muscles from the Shell award for 
best use of Dracul. <laughs> a character in here says Dracul. I mean, I'm putting the inflection on it, but that's the only way you could say Dracul. Oh, yeah. You can't be like, Dracul, is Dracul there? <laughs> no, you just say Dracul. It's cool. It's dark. It's Wolverine, weird vampire stuff, really furthering that story, uh, which is a great place to see things for X-Books. There's a great history with X-Men and Dracula, and going back to that is tremendous. So this, this is a good story. Yeah, totally. And perfect creative team to do it as well. All right. That's what we have for our picking a muscle out of a shell of the week section as it always was named. And now we are jumping into what's on offer this week in the collection shelves. We have a bunch of Fantastic Four on the way and we have some Hercules with Incredible Hercules, the complete collection volume two in here. And if you're into Namor, we have an epic collection called Enter the Submariner this week. Yeah, uh, lots of great stuff on Marvel Unlimited this week. The first issue of the current Eternal series by Kieran and Isad, which is wow. Read that, of course. Uh, we got an issue of Thor. We've got some Ultraman in here, some cool Star Wars stuff. But of course, the most important comic of any century is Modoc Head Games. We've got a second issue <laughs> on Marvel Unlimited this week. So uh, bow down yes. before the rightful king of all comics. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's see. It's, I guess it's time to get into our interview this week. And we are talking with Mr. Declan Shalvey. What are we talking about, Tucker? We're talking about Deadline, a really unique pick from Declan, one that I had never read before. And I think it's a perfect kind of fascinating reading club series to dive into because of the time it came out, because of the characters. It's just really unique and worthy of analysis on a bunch of different fronts. We also have a special surprise guest who's going to jump in and talk to us about the series. So let's go to that right now. All right, Tucker, we are getting global this week because our guest here on Marvel's Pull List is Mr. Declan Shalvey. Deck, how you doing, buddy? I'm uh, doing fine. Thanks. Hanging in there yeah. like yourselves. It's exciting. Tucker now on the West Coast of America. I'm on the East Coast and you're across the pond. This is, this is good fun. I'm very excited. Today, we're talking about Deadline. This is a fascinating read. It was one that I totally didn't expect. And it's something that I just wish we got more of. This is just such a unique story. And when I was reading it, I felt a certain kinship between this story and the way you write, certainly, and maybe even just like the kinds of stories that you seem drawn to. There's just a specificity about the angle towards it about the unique kind of storytelling. It's just certainly not a straightforward superhero story. So from that angle, from any angle, why'd you pick Deadline? I looked at my bookcase and I thought, no, everyone's going to pick that one. Everyone's going to pick that one. <laughs> and then I saw Deadline was there. I was like, oh man, I totally forgot about this. And I pulled it out and I'm like, Bill Roseman, who like, Bill is actually the editor that hired me at Marvel originally and guy davis i'm a huge fan of of all the bprd hellboy stuff he did and um, colored by dave stewart i'm like holy crap this thing is like this if this came out now i'd go crazy you know uh, dave sharp i think on letters as well yeah really really great letter it's kind of weird looking at it again as a kind of a, an artifact because like um jeff youngquist was an assistant <laughs> yeah. editor on it and like i just <laughs> worked with him on the marvel art book I did last year for any of our listeners, Jeff is now in our like special projects collections department. I want to say he's a vice president or he's just some high muckety muck. <laughs> he's been at Marvel yeah. for a long, long time. But there he is, like a lowly assistant editor, like everybody else has been. <laughs> but yeah, once I kind of pulled it out, I was like, man, this is great. And now having had 
reread it. It's kind of what you're saying there, Tucker, is it's kind of weird. It really does speak to me, like the type of stories I like and to tell. Yeah, the thing that got me so excited about this was when I think of this book, I think of the covers that are by Greg Horn. Greg is a great cover artist, and I think he excels when he does exciting action and like superheroes. When you give him something big, bright, and colorful that pops, I think that's where his wheelhouse is. On these, and I, you know, I just want to be honest, these are not my favorite covers of his. So these are different. Yeah, I mean, like Greg's an accomplished artist and very skilled, but like they kind of lean a little too sexy for the tone of the book. Mm. Definitely. It does not fit. Like the main character, Kat, like she's not a sexy character in the book, but like I don't think Greg Horn's capable of not drawing something that's that's <laughs> aesthetically really um, pleasing, you know? It's weird. Looking at it again, it is slightly kind of a weird time capsule of like early 2000s Marvel because I think Greg was doing all the big covers at the time, even reading it. There's like smoking in the book, which is not something you'd, it's kind of like watching Mad Men now, you know, you're like, wow, this was in comics. (laughs) There was something happening in Marvel at the time, like between the Ultimates and like there was a weird creative renaissance happening at the time. And they were really trying so many different things. I love that like, this is one of the things that came out of that, you know, it's a weird time capsule of Marvel at that time by being something very unconventional and not something like you're saying, Tucker, uh, superheroic. Like Guy Davis can do crime drama. He can do superheroes. He can he can draw the weirdest, most exceptional things. And he's also amazing at drawing the most mundane, like cars and food trucks and office buildings. Like, um, yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm blabbing now. I just it's so so interesting to kind of come back to it after this long and read it like it's a new because I think the quality of it is top notch. Yeah, it feels like it's something you could read right now, but weirdly there is a kind of a early 2000s charge to it. You know, when I, w- I was talking about the Greg Horn covers, like in my head, it's like, mm, I don't know if this is my book. And then you open it up and there's no credits on the page. And I hadn't looked, and I was reading it on Marvel Unlimited. I hadn't looked at the creators that, other than knowing that Bill wrote this. And I was like, wait a minute, is this a Guy Davis book? Yeah. And I flipped the page and you come to a two-page spread and I was like, and it was like this well of joy that came up through me because Guy has only drawn eight comics for Marvel, which is so upsetting. He did Unstable Molecules. I remember that. And like, that's, that's infamous. Yeah. That's four issues. And then there's this. That's the only penciled interiors he's done. He's got maybe a cover or two here and there. That's it. And Guy is an incredible artist. He's like so good for me. This was like the secret feast that you brought to the table. There really does feel like so much to dig into. I hear maybe chief among them to what you're speaking about, Declan, are the this era of Marvel. I've done specifically a lot of research and work in writing about the Marvel Knights era of Marvel Comics and a big part of that, and I actually had a conversation with Tom Brevoort about this exact thing of Joe and Jimmy come to Marvel, Marvel Knights happens. It's a unique type of storytelling, certainly a more mature tone, and it, that filters through to the art. You know, when the entire enterprise is being led by two artists, of course, it's going to filter through in that way. And then when Joe becomes editor in chief, he sort of, in Tom Brevoort's own words, brings a certain sense of that style across the Marvel line. So reading this in that light especially was really fascinating to me. And I think as I'm thinking about this out loud even more, I think that's more and more what I identify with a Declan Shalvey book. I think, first of all, Mortal Hulk Flatline is fresh in my brain. So I've been thinking about it a ton. Garbage. It's terrible. 
Uh, I love that issue. And so I was just curious to get your thoughts on that in general, about Marvel Knights, about reading this in that context, and where you were at this time as a comic book fan, as a reader, if this was your kind of fair when it was hitting shelves in 2002. So first I'll say, like, um, I remember picking up the first issue of Daredevil, the Kevin Smith and um, Casada. It was hard for me to get comics at the time. I was only really able to kind of like get some reprints of Amazing Spider-Man and X-Men. And now and then I'd actually get some American comics. I remember my, my mom would take me up to Dublin for my birthday and I'd just get as many comics as I could and then figure them out later. When Deadline came out, I would have been like, say, in... I remember I fell out of comics for a while when I was in art college because I um, had gone to an all-boys Catholic school and I had discovered what girls were. So that kind of occupied my focus for a couple of years. But then when I came back, I remember Marvel had just changed so much. It was really, really exciting. And I still didn't have much access, so it took me a while to to catch up. But I think there was so much ideas being thrown against the wall to see what stuck. And just personally, I think it's good when a company does that because you never know what's going to hit. Do you think that an, a comic about the vision with a family was going to have any impact? You know, that's the kind of swing of events I love seeing. It won't always work out, but when it does, that's where I think real innovation comes from. And I like that like Marvel have, especially at that time, I think we're just trying so many things and like, look what worked. And it is interesting looking at Marvel over the years, like you could say that was, um, that was a certain era and like Axel Alonso's era. I've, I've talked to some creators about how it was maybe more writer centric. And like, I think it's probably too soon to say, but like how people are going to look at Marvel comics under CB's editorial ship. It's always interesting to look back. You can never really tell at the time. Yeah, I like what you said about the editors-in-chief and sort of when you step back, you look at what Joe really did, what Axel did, and what CB is continuing to do. It's hard, right? Because we're in the moment, but I see the way that we're like, Pepe is is getting a lot of attention and guys like Russell. And, and you in particular, I, I think is really exciting for me to see as a friend and just watching you get to stretch out more while doing the writing and the drawing. And I think it's really cool to be able to see a creator unleashed and being able to tell their stories the way they want to tell them. How exciting is that for you right now to be able to have 10 years of Marvel under your belt and now being able to like say, yeah, this is a story I want to tell and I want to do all the pieces. It's it's pretty crazy. I don't know if uh, Will would remember this, but uh, me and Will Sliney have been friends for years and years and years. And before either of us really broke in, we were in a pub one time. I think we were saying like, imagine you could work on any book. And I mean, he might have said Spider-Man, I might have said Wolverine. And like in the space of whatever it is, 10 or 15 years, that ends up happening. And um, the nice thing now is like, you know, the stuff Marvel's coming to me is like, hey, would you like to write and draw X, Y, and Z? And that's crazy. I didn't think I'd be in that position, but but it means it's great. It means I can do creator-owned stuff when I want to. And when I come to Marvel, I just do stuff that genuinely interests me. I definitely want to be doing stuff that kind of um, adds to a body of work effectively. And um, I have to credit Will Moss, actually, was the one who kind of um, gave me that opportunity. With the, I don't know if you remember the Nick Fury serial from them. It was a Choosing Sides anthology. And um, Will really took a chance on me there. Like he, I didn't have any writing to show him, but he, he offered me that thinking that because of my storytelling, I would have a good visual sense to write and draw and... I hope he was proven right. <laughs> but that was definitely <laughs> satisfying in a way I hadn't had to do before. And and it's been great that Marvel has been so open to me doing more of that. It's been really, really uh, creatively rewarding. We should probably talk a little bit 
about Deadline, the comic we're here for. And we thought, wouldn't it be fun to have a special guest in addition to Declan join us to talk about this book? So why don't we bring him in now, Mr. Bill Roseman? Hello, true believers. Oh, there he is. That's, that's it. Bill, we have you here for a very specific reason, because on our reading club this week, the esteemed guest, Mr. Declan Shalvey, has chosen one deadline for issue limited series for us to talk about. And so can you give us any insight into how the project came about and uh, any any thoughts about, you know, looking back on it almost 20 years ago? First, I got to say, Declan Shalvey, you are a gentleman and a scholar. And thank you for, of all things, picking Deadline. Oh, my pleasure. Appreciate it. So Deadline, how did it come about? I bugged Tom Brevoort enough that to shut me up, he finally said, all right, I'll let you write this comic. Well, what were you doing at the time? So at the time, I was working on staff in the marketing department. You know, my, my lifelong dream was to work for Marvel and make comics. Um, and it was difficult to get in through editorial. But I found a way in through first writing for Marvel H magazine. And then I became the copywriter for the Marvel sales catalog. I didn't know what copywriting was, but I used to buy previews and and read the Marvel section obsessively. So I said, well, I'll, you know, I'll take a shot at this. I'll fake it. And it worked. Then I got a job on staff as a copywriter and then eventually got into marketing. Of course, I always wanted to write comics. And there was a decades long tradition at Marvel that people on staff were able to also write uh, because who else would know the characters? And if you're on staff, they could hold you to deadlines better because you had to come into work each day. So, you know, that's what Stan did, Roy Thomas, you name it. There was a long list of Marvel staffers who also wrote comics. And so at the time it was permitted. And so um, I pitched a series to Tom about uh, Daily Bugle Reporter. I just always felt that that would be a really interesting view of the Marvel Universe. Maybe it was inspired by the Marvel's miniseries by Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross. I was fascinated with Yes, we as comic book readers, we love the superheroes. But can you imagine living in New York City and trying to get to work and your train is late because two costume yahoos are fighting? And the people in New York wouldn't have the knowledge and the insight that we as readers do. We as readers have insight into the hero's thoughts and feelings, and we know what, what they're trying to do. But if you just lived in that world, you would have no idea. You would just look up and see things exploding, and it would be very scary and frightening. And so it was an interesting balance. And so it was about this reporter named Kat Farrell, last name named after my wife, first name named after uh, Catherine Hepburn. And she wants to be, you know, a serious crime reporter. And as a rookie, she's given the beat of what we call the capes. That's what they call the, the costume heroes. And this just angers her and frustrates her. But she begrudgingly does it. And her arc is about coming to understand superhumans. What is it like to be one? Why do they do what they do? It's also a murder mystery and also a bit of a supernatural romance. Most importantly, it features gorgeous art by Guy Davis. Mm -hmm. Guy drew a comic book I really liked, published by the Distinguished Competition in their Vertigo line called Sam and Mystery Theater. And that was just one of my favorite books. Guy was able to not only draw a beautiful New York City, but really deliver the humanity of the characters and how they struggle 
them are often in danger because they're of their vulnerabilities. Tom was asking, well, who would you think of drawing this? I said, well, you know, my, my dream artist would be Guy Davis. And Tom's like, why don't we ask him? Wow. So right from the start, you were thinking of Guy Davis. Number one from the start. That was it. I love Sam and Mr. Theater. I love BPRD. I love his character designs. I love his world building. And Tom said, let's go for it. Let's ask him. What I love so much about it is like, you know, Guy's amazing at drawing like, you know, real things and buildings and characters with character. But, you know, when he draws like superheroes, like they look kind of ridiculous, you know, which is great. You know, like that, that uh, splash page with Doc Ock and uh, Spider-Man, like Doc Ock looks amazing, yes. like, you know, and it's because you're, you're withholding from the audience that spectacle because we're talking like ground level stuff. When you do see it, it needs to be something crazy. And he's able to do that. You know, it's not as splashy, but it's so much more satisfying. And, you know, all the bad guys in their costumes, like they're creepy looking in a way that like a different character would have made them like really clean and too superheroic. I believe it was Guy's first work for Marvel, and he's not really known for doing superhero work. He brought that fresh perspective of what might these characters really look like? And what would your impression be of them? A lot of us long-time readers are used to reading comics, and we become very used to things. But imagine seeing, you know, going into the bar with no name and seeing these supervillains in this dark bar. It would be really freaky. Yeah, I think that goes to kind of the perspective you were talking about. I think that evokes it so well is that guys art helps make it seem off. Like when you see a supervillain and a superhero fight, there's like this instant like, oh, you're thrown out of whack. You should feel. And, and our perspective is with Kat and with, you know, the on the ground bugle reporters and the other folks in the book. And I think that works so well. I love that splash page. I'm glad you brought that up there. Yeah, there's there's a bit where um you know that um lightning guy uh, accosts her in the, the in the alleyway, but he's gentle like his teeth are disturbing you know and when the judge takes him out and there's this shot uh, and you you have it in the dialogue afterwards but you almost didn't need it because Guy Davis just drew this face that looks sad and forlorn that's why he's so he's so great with character as well you know I'm glad you brought that up one of the things that was so fun working with Guy was we thought about okay if superheroes and supervillains existed, there would need to be sort of a underground infrastructure for them. Where do they go to drink? They go to the bar with no name. Where would a supervillain go to get a tattoo? And what kind of tattoo needle would you need to work on superhuman skin? And if you get hurt as a supervillain, where do you go? The heroes could go to night nurse, right? Where do villains go? So we invented this guy, Dr. Pow, who has a off the books medical facility down in Chinatown. And so we just invented all these little, this whole infrastructure. And that's where Kat goes to, she's trying to solve this mystery, this superhuman mystery. Where does she go for information? And so she takes us down into the belly of the beast. And Guy was so good at just world building and coming up with the look of the characters and making it really scary. Like what's so fun about murder mysteries is you are in the, the shoes of the detective. Murder mysteries are fun because the detective takes you into a world where you wouldn't normally go. And it should be a little scary. And so she as this reporter is taking you down into the world of supervillains. Where do they live and where do they go and how do they protect each other? And are they wary? And will they ever give up information? And will she be in danger trying to find the truth? You know, the tagline of, of Deadline was killer story is hazardous to your health. Uh, there's two more things I want to talk about before we let you go, Mr. Roseman. One is... Zeitgeist, particularly the splash page that Guy draws, I 
was floored by, as you mentioned, the world building yes. that y'all did, especially the way that Guy and Dave sort of build the the look of that sort of spiritual realm. It's so cool. So yeah, I forgot about that zeitgeist. It was, you know, so this character, the judge, you know, we were inspired by characters like the Phantom Stranger or the Spectre, these kind of gentleman ghosts. And he takes Kat on this journey back into the past of New York City, into kind of the supernatural underrealm. And Kat goes on this dark trail. And sometimes when you when you have supernatural stories, there isn't a physical threat when you go into these different dimensions. But, and we wanted to make it like real. Like if you get hurt in the zeitgeist, you get hurt in real life. And when you're a writer or editor and you work with an artist, you always want to ask them, well, what do you like to draw? What are they great at? And so, again, Guy is so good at architecture and as Declan, as you said, making things creepy. You try and steer the story towards what you know they'll draw awesomely and what readers will enjoy. Um, and I'm sure a lot of it was brainstorming with Tom and Guy and Mark Sumrak was the assistant editor. And that's a lot about behind the scenes in comics. It's very collaborative. It's not any one person's vision. You should, as a writer or as an editor, as I've done, and working with Declan uh, on our issues of Thunderbolts. Good times. Yes. You know, as an editor, I really loved bringing new artists and writers into Marvel. And then just working with them and collaborating with them, having the opportunity to work with Guy, just dream scenario. When you go through Marvel's history, people usually do think of, oh, Marvel only does these big, huge books, um, which we're great at because we get to work with the best writers and artists. But our history is really also filled with these smaller little stories. Um, it's peppered throughout, you know, every decade. Which can be... Like not to put down any of the, the bigger stuff, but like it can be a lot more rewarding because the stakes aren't as high. It's something that you can just kind of, you can show a little corner of a huge Marvel universe. You can just lift a little corner and show a little part of it. It doesn't always need to be what these big, big, big things are happening all the time. And that's great. Yeah, I really like when just weird little stories come out now and then. Thing, things that like, you don't know what the audience is going to be, but sometimes you have to make something for an audience to find. Well, with Marvel, the, the most personal stories end up being the most universal stories. You know, the readers are us. We are the readers. So what's so fun about Marvel is, yeah, I love the big spectacle stories because the creators are so good at injecting the human into the superhuman. And then at the same time, I love, as you say, like the street level stories. The trick is when you talk about stakes, even though, you know, the whole galaxy isn't in danger for the main character in their lives, how do you make the stakes so dramatic? You know, the universe isn't at stake, but their world is. The people they love are endangered. And so that's the trick is you need to make the stakes just as big as a huge crossover. And it's a fun puzzle we try and figure out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of big stakes, Bill, you are a big muckety-muck for Marvel games. So we're going to let you go handle some big stakes, <laughs> games, action. Thank you for popping in, surprising Mr. Declan Shalvey. It was good to see you. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Tucker. And Declan, thank you so much. It was an honor to work with you at Marvel. And it's great to see you again, my friend. Hey, you too, man. I lo love everything you're doing. Like it's uh, all, the, all the game stuff is crazy exciting. We have an awesome team who love Marvel, who love the comics. And we're working with awesome studios that are the same. And so it's just, hey, Marvel fans trying to make the best games for other Marvel fans. Amen. Thank you so much, Bill. Uh, cheers, Bill. Thanks, man. Thanks, guys. Have a good day. See you, Bill. That was a nice surprise. Yeah. 
As we propel through the story, heading to issue two, three, and then towards the end, I think this character, the judge, is a really fascinating one. There is such a specific concept behind this character, and I could so easily imagine, say, okay, how do we take this character who's the judge and build a story around that, analyze what that means, you know, a character that obviously is in its own way, like almost a meta commentary on superheroes and supervillains in general, deciding what's good, what's right, what's wrong, who's guilty, who's innocent. But it also is fascinating to me. And this is one of those Tucker's history corner moments that I love to dive into. This feels like a book of the early 2000s, obviously in, in the ways that we talked about in terms of Marvel Knights. It also feels like a book created around and in the aftermath of 9-11 in a big way which is a fascinating little snapshot into these things. And even hearing Bill talk about it, I, I feel like I can sense that energy in it. And it just in general feels like it's an analysis or at least a meditation on some big questions that you know were being asked at that time. And certainly in you know a place like New York City is certainly you know kind of the setting of this story. There's even a 9-11 reference in there. Uh, yeah, there's one. Yeah, just, just one, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it's inter interesting culturally. There's that great... You know what Bill was saying earlier about like uh, people in New York wouldn't uh, necessarily care. Like it, it, there is like this great New York snapshot page. One I like is, um, you know, I could do without uh, people who yak on cell phones. I'm like, oh, that's going to change. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I think little things like that, which sometimes moments like that can pull you out of the story, but I think it would have felt very contemporary at the time and now just kind of feels like a nice um, time capsule. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm sure if the book had done crazy well, there would have been more stories with even cat i'm surprised like cat's shown up a little bit more she's shown up in in a couple places she was on the in the pulse she had a couple other not a ton but definitely i think may have been used by bendis yeah i was just thinking it seems like a character bendis would have written especially at that time because he was like you know dakota and jessica jones and stuff like that like it well i guess i guess there was just too many cool ladies at the time <laughs> uh, it's interesting you bring up the time frame of it, Tucker. So the book release date was April 3rd, 2002, which means that the first issue was probably written January, February, somewhere around there to give enough time for Guy to draw it because he does all four issues. So 9-11 is being a New Yorker. It's still on our minds, but like that was so omnipresent. It's almost It's interesting to me that it almost has such a small presence in the book. Good point, actually. Yeah, you would think, I mean, you would like think and understand that like a huge cultural thing like that. I mean, I say cultural as in it was a real thing that happened, but had wide cultural impact, you know? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. But uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I can also see that maybe it was just something you want to steer away from. Yeah, could be. We need escapism. If you remember at the time, people were removing the Twin Towers from movies and things. I think people weren't really sure how to kind of land on that without a bit of distance. Um, so, I mean, it, it is interesting when you talk about this stuff because, you know, you guys know how stuff that's coming out now, there's conversations about whether things are appropriate or there is what the zeitgeist is, you know, how, how a book can come out and then it release on a certain time where things go brilliantly or things go terribly or who knows. So um, there, there, I'm sure there was a conversation at the time, but, um, but it but also would feel like to not reference it at all would have been a bit odd too. Yeah. Uh, and our producer, Jorge, just let us all know that Kat showed up in Amazing Spider-Man Daily Bugle number one, the book which you did a variant for. 
I'm going to blame this. I'm going to say I don't think I got my comps for that. So I haven't read it. <laughs> Here's the truth, listeners. Declan does not read That's not comic true. Books. That's not true. I read Deadline, didn't I? Um, <laughs> but I actually, I, I actually have. I did miss the boat on that one because, um, I, if I recall, I had to do the cover of that book before there was an artist attached. Weird things like that happen behind the scenes where a book is going to be announced if it's going to make for uh, previews. So that that was a weird. It's always weird when you're drawing the covers of something when there isn't even an artist on the book. But um, I did really want to read that because that's it's totally up my alley. Like uh, even re- reading Deadline now, like I I don't know why, but I really like stuff with journalism and that kind of eye. And like I really loved the Pulse at the time as well. So, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I I would wish there were more books like that for sure. Same with like the street level talk like that's what i i just like street level stuff generally so that's why i like daredevil because it's a crime book that's a superhero book it's one thing i really like about marvel stories in general is a pure superhero thing isn't necessarily interesting and what kind of keeps things fresh is you know a crime spin on it or a fantasy spin or like they're you know espionage like they're they're doing that i think i think it's part of why the the movies and tv shows are doing so well because the comics did such a good job of that i agree i think the journalism aspect of it is so fascinating and it brings me to just generally, which is my love of Robbie Robertson as a character. I think in terms of supporting characters in Marvel history, Robbie might be one of my favorites ever. I love Ben Urich. It's just its own little world that exists within the broader world, which exists within the broader universe that I just love analyzing. And this leads me to, I don't know, this point which is would do do you have any you know kind of journalistic type stories kicking around in your head is that an area that you know you say you like to analyze it you like to dig into as a reader is that something that interests you as a creator yeah definitely i mean i'm big into say um, espionage crime uh, spy stuff journalist stuff like i think i guess they're all effectively detective stories um, and I'm, I'm big into those, you know, so why I like my, my Daredevil and my Batmans and whatnot. But, um, you know, the creator-owned stuff I've done has tended to lean towards crime. You know, I like that type of stories. I don't tend to really get to do them in in Marvel because, like, you know, um, big and bombastic is stuff that's... Well, well so it, it, I guess it's a kind of, um, it's kind of um, a clash because I like being leading into very visual things. But offices and cubicles um and talking heads aren't necessarily the most compelling i think that i think that's why i like daredevil because you can do boring quote-unquote boring scenes but counter those with like great superhero action you know um and i i think as a storyteller that's the benefit of, of marvel because you can do things that are more street level and also play to the spectacular it's not, it keeps you on your toes as an artist for one um i, I definitely have like a that type of story in me just um uh yeah I, but I'm, I'm not going around asking for it all the time like you know i know editors are plenty busy they don't need me bugging them about stuff you know <laughs> fair enough uh all right deck as, as we are wrapping up here and one of the things you talked about with bill when he asked you know why you chose this was guy davis and i think i can't stress it enough for any of our listeners because maybe you read primarily marvel comics you've not seen much by guy Please rectify that. Go read some of, of the work that Guy's done for Dark Horse and, and other places. It's He's an incredible artist and an incredible illustrator. Well, yeah, I, I, I would say Unstable Molecules, uh, the book he, or the Marvel book he did, is great. Like It's yes. really interesting. Um, also, um, he did the Marquee, which he wrote and drew. Mm-hmm. That's gorgeous, actually, especially with the visuals of, um, of uh, the judge in this. It's, it's 
and it's in black and white with grey tones. A big chunk of volume of work. It's absolutely stunning. He's he's incredible. Criminally criminally underrated. I mean, but his BPRD, you put him next yeah. to Mike Mignola, and that the the universe that Mike creates, it's almost blasphemy. But like, guy can has times when he can outshine Mike. I prefer him personally, but just just. I'll get destroyed for the saying this, like no egg, like no Mignola, but, um, uh, but I, I just uh, guy has a wider. He does he does more with the tools he has. You know, Mignola is amazing what he does, but um, I, I just think uh, guy has a broader spectrum as a storyteller, and uh, I I, uh, I love it. Yeah. Uh, so are you know as we're wrapping, up, are there any other artists who you know you see their name, you are definitely going to just pick it up, uh, otherwise sight unseen. Oh man. Um, Goran Parlov and JP Leon um, are like mm-hmm. instant. You have an aesthetic. Yeah, I do, I guess. But I also have wide interest. Like I, I pick up like Erica Henderson or Joshua Casera or... Josh, frequent listener to Marvel's pull list. So now you two <laughs> have to be best friends. Uh, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Um, <laughs> you know, like I, I've, I've, my tastes are fairly wide, but I do tend to kind of like the kind of dark, moody stuff personally. But um. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, it's a terrible answer. It's uh, it's too vague. No, I, I I love that because I think those are great artists, and I find it helpful as a podcast listener to get recommendations from people I respect and hearing things, and that'll lead me to, oh, maybe someone doesn't know Goran Parlov as well as say some of the other artists we're talking about. Then they got some good stuff ahead of them. Deck, anything else you wanna you wanna add about Deadline before we? let you go uh no i mean uh well you said it's on the mar it's on it's on the marvel app so anyone can anyone who has the app can check it out sure? highly encourage it if just it's even it's just a self-contained interesting kind of a detective story which with lovely kind of little sparkles of the rest of marvel universe i uh, brilliantly illustrated and we uh, i didn't get to ask bill but it's really well written too i really liked it i think we should definitely have you on again another time because i want to talk about some of the work that you've done moon knight would be really fun to talk about i think that one, you know, I think is such a, a landmark issue for making new Moon Knight fans with the news about Moon Knight coming to the MCU and there have been, you know, 200 odd Moon Knight issues. I think a lot of folks keep going back or like coming to and be like, whoa, this book, this book is something cool and something fun. So I would love it if you could come back at another point and talk about that. Yeah, sure. Let me know anytime. I'm I'm more than happy to talk about myself. <laughs> I wanted to do it about somebody else uh, this time, but sure. I love talking about me. Well, Declan Shalvey, thank you for coming on the show. And we will hopefully talk to you again to heap praise upon one of your own works. Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> the awkwardness ensues. Thanks, Deck. Thanks, Deck. Cheers. Thank you again to Mr. Shalvey. What a great guest. And of course, thank you to your man at Marvel, Bill Roseman. Love hearing him talk about anything. His energy, his excitement is just the best. Anyway, thank you again to everybody involved for this great reading club. All right. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by me, as well as Tucker Marcus, Jorge Estrada, with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. And of course, he is always on deadline. Nice. I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe.